0: And welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And if you're tuning in for the first time, and especially if you're from the Renaissance Festivals podcast, where I recently did a guest spot, a very special and warm welcome to you, too. I've done an episode on music of the English Renaissance before, but it was quite short, and I've been meaning to add more to the information that I presented before specifically this week i'm going to talk about the chapel royal which was the personal chapel of the king which sang the mass for him in all of his great houses and when he traveled i'm also going to talk about the rise of english polyphony and some of the changes that the coming of the reformation and all of the backing and forthing during the reigns of edward and mary brought to sacred music in england So I have a Spotify playlist from the earlier episode I did on music and I'll be adding to that over the next couple of days. It's public, so you can subscribe to it and listen to it if you want to really start to immerse yourself in this kind of music. To get the link, you can go to the site, the website at englandcast.com. It's a brand new site. Um, I moved everything over to a WordPress site a couple of weeks ago. So go to englandcast.com. Then there's a link for resources and listen. And you can see the link there for the Spotify playlist. So also before I get started, just a housekeeping thing. First, if you like this podcast, please, please, please rate it on whatever service that you use to listen to it. I would be most appreciative. Thank you. And second, like I said, I have the new website up at englandcast.com. There's buttons to donate and links to the Patreon page if you are so inclined to support this podcast, either by giving a one-time tip or by making a regular subscription contribution. Both are appreciated. And third... You know how sometimes when you're driving on the freeway, you see an empty billboard and it says your ad here. So consider this to be the podcast equivalent. If you're responsible for marketing for say, a museum, historical tour company, anything like that, and you'd like to reach a hundred thousand listeners a month, please send me an email. So with that out of the way, let's get started. In his book Music and Monarchy, which will be my book recommendation for this episode. Dr. David Starkey begins with Henry V's victory over the French at Agincourt in 1415, which was the high point for the British in the Hundred Years' War. Before he fought, in his preparation for battle, Henry didn't do anything that we would imagine a modern statesman or general would do. He didn't have meetings with military leaders. What he did was he heard a beautiful mass sung by his chapel royal, with an altar that was completely decorated with cloth and gold candlesticks and a crucifix and reliquary, some of the most important military supplies that Henry had, because Henry believed that he was fighting a holy war. And so singing a mass was an obvious thing to do before going into battle. Henry V was also a composer, and several movements of a mass attributed to him have been found in a contemporary choir book. It's in the Hundred Years' War that we first see the beginning of the national identity for the English, and the first time since before the Norman Conquest, really. It's a little bit before our time, but I'm just going to start to mention it and go back there in order for us to really understand the building need for English polyphonic music. So, the Chapel Royal performed the daily services for the king. It wasn't a chapel like a place or a building, but it was more of a mobile group of the king's personal priests and singers, composers who traveled with him wherever he was. The chapel had existed since the time of William the Conqueror, but it first took shape during the reign of Edward I in the late 13th century. Edward III expanded it to include 32 adult singers and 16 boy choristers. So in 1337, Edward III gets involved with starting the Hundred Years' War. He claimed the throne of France in addition to that of England. Five years later in 1542, he started the Order of the Garter, which was an order of warrior knights that would encourage each other in the French War. He established the order at Windsor and he dedicated it to the Virgin Mary and to St. George. St. George became the patron saint of England, and the Red Cross on the white background became the national flag. St. George's Chapel became the model for a new kind of religious foundation. They called it a college, and colleges were then founded all over the country by nobles and knights of the garter who wanted to imitate Windsor. These colleges were founded to include choristers, the choristers would sing for the founders' prosperity in life and would pray for their soul in death. So fast forward close to a hundred years, uh, something like 75 years here. um, After the Battle of Agincourt, Henry V won some diplomatic victories in the next few years. And to celebrate just how great things were going for him, it seemed like England was just going to conquer the world. To celebrate. He multiplied the daily devotions in the Chapel Royal. So at the time, there were four services that were sung. Um, They started at three o'clock in the morning. There was another one at daybreak. There were evening services and then another service right before you went to bed. So there was four masses that were sung. And to those services, um, Henry decided to add some extra ...sorts of music that needed to be sung. Three sung anthems to the morning high mass... ...and six to the evening service. So suddenly there's this huge demand for new music. There's a manuscript in the British Library... ...called the Old Hall Manuscript which is the earliest English choir book with settings from around 1415 to 1421. And it has different parts of the mass, the Gloria, the Credo Sanctus, on you together with the additional music that Henry had added. And it seems to have been created for Henry's brother, Thomas, who also kept a very large chapel with a choir. And when Thomas was killed in the war in 1421, the book passed back to the Chapel Royal and some of the musicians added in their own works. So there was this kind of need for this extra sacred music to be written uh, during this time in celebration for all of these victories. And since all of the high nobles had their own chapels and had their own choirs, there were lots of composers composing a lot of this music. So Henry V's son, Henry VI, was completely incompetent as a military leader and he lost the land in France that his father had gained. He also lost the English throne and saw the start of the Wars of the Roses. It was just kind of a mess. But one really positive legacy is that he founded some of the most famous and influential colleges in England that still exist today. So one of them is the King's College of Our Lady of Eton, besides Windsor, which is now known simply as Eton College, and he also founded King's College, Cambridge. And they're two of the most prestigious schools in the world now. They were founded as colleges to sing and pray for the souls of Henry VI and his family. King's College still has regular even song services that are open to the public. And if you get there early enough, you can actually sit next to the choir stalls and soak up the music that has been being sung there for 600 years and still sung daily it's a magical experience if you're into this kind of music at all i highly recommend you make a pilgrimage to king's college Um, it's just an amazing experience to kind of hear this music sung in that setting if you go in the winter when it gets dark really early too it's really kind of spooky because there's just these candles everywhere and the ceiling with all the vaulting is just kind of all shadowy and it's really magical so if you're into it make a pilgrimage So the thing about these colleges that was really unique is that they were all secular and open to the public as opposed to closed communities like monasteries. The fad for founding colleges was really one of the best things to ever happen to English music. The colleges had more money than other groups, so they could spend a lot on the music. They could draw on a wider pool of musical talent than a monastery could because they weren't restricted to using people who had taken the vows. Um, they could just use general talented people. And so choirs got bigger, and the sounds became much more complex. Um, hundreds of of colleges had been created during this time, and it became a huge source of employment for musicians. And then it was just kind of like creativity, begetting creativity, because composers would sing or composers would write music for this, these new choirs, which would sing them. And there was just Kind of this country full of music in, in the noblemen's chapels. Um, a really exciting time, I would think, if you were a musician. So we still have today the Eton Choir Book, which survived the Reformation and is one of the sole surviving collections of medieval and Tudor polyphony. It was designed for use at Eton College, it was written around 1500 and is large enough for about 20 choristers to use to sing from. They wouldn't have all had their own individual copies of the music. Of course, that would have been way too expensive. So they had one really big book that everybody could read from. And the Eaton Choir book contains about 50 complete works representing 24 different composers. It's divided up into time periods, which really kind of helps to show the rise of of English polyphony and, and how it matured over the years. English polyphony was, rather than plain chant, it was composed of several different independent parts that all weave together. And it's a very highly specialized art form, and it meant that only the wealthy patrons could afford it, given the skill that it took not just to write it, but also to perform it. And one of the greatest early composers was John Dunstable. He wrote music for every member of the royal family. And he also had a reputation outside of England. It allowed him to travel the continent and study music from around Europe, as well as introducing his own style to courts that he visited. The works of John Dunstable start out the Eaton Choir book, and then towards the middle there's works from John Brown, including a six-part setting of Stabat Uxta Christu Krut- Christi Crucium, which means near the cross of Christ stood Mary, which was probably composed for Henry VII's wife, Elizabeth of York, after the death of their son, Arthur, who was Henry VIII's older brother. And there's also Robert Wilkinson in the, in the choir book. He belonged to the last group of musicians. And if you listen to the Spotify playlist that I created, I've got music from all these guys on there. And I highly recommend wearing good headphones and imagining that you're in one of these cavernous college chapels like King's where this music would have originally been sung. And you can just get a taste of how extraordinary of an experience it would have been for people to have heard this music. And the courts of Europe, when their ambassadors experienced it, they would write home about it. And soon, you know, people were starting to imitate it all over Europe. Um, it was just a stunning experience, and like I said, it still is. <laughs> so by the middle of the 15th century, the Chapel Royal had become the most distinguished musical organization in England and probably in Europe as well. The chapel followed the king. Like I said, it didn't have any kind of separate home or endowment. It simply traveled around the king where, with the king wherever he went. The staff included the dean, the chaplains, gentlemen of the Chapel Royal, and the boy choristers. And it followed the collegiate repertory of polyphony in the daily devotions to the king and to the court. And because the king backed it, it recruited the best composers and singers from the other colleges. There was this whole kind of recruitment program, the way colleges, universities today might vie over the best sports players, the best football players. They would actually kind of vie over the best boy choristers at the time and kind of poach them from each other. And um, the adult performers would move freely back and forth to wherever the highest bidders were, really. And as a result, the musical life of late medieval England, right around the turn to the 16th century, it was just flourishing. And European monarchs were envious. The English composers had their works copied and performed all over Europe. And English music set the fashion for the rest of Europe. And the choirs were just marveled at. So, by the early 1500s, 1509, Henry VIII is ruling. And he was, of course, famous as a musical king who saw the late medieval flourishing of English music reach its crescendo. Haha, <laughs> I said crescendo about a, in, a, in a bit about music. I'm so clever. <laughs> Sorry, I I couldn't resist. Um, so he saw late medieval flourishing of English music reach its crescendo before pulling one of his well-known reversals which actually wound up threatening English sacred music completely with total destruction. How did he do that? Well, so Henry VIII was a trained musician. He was skilled in theory and practice. He had been the second son, of course, after his brother Arthur. So he was groomed for life in a monastery. He was taught lots of different instruments, taught to compose. Um, he was able to compose polyphony including a five-part mass he grew up listening to music in his father's chapel royal and it was just a huge part of who he was um his own henry the own chapel royal his choir had a reputation throughout europe but sometimes it was even bested by the choir of his cardinal thomas wolsey and the king and the cardinal would actually fight over promising boy choristers who would become stars themselves, and they would poach them back and forth from each other's choirs. And um, Henry also employed more foreign musicians at his court than any other monarch before him. So he had just this court that was just full of music. Um, Also, in terms of building, he finished the work of his predecessors. He completed the construction of the King's College Chapel and also the Henry VII Chapel at Westminster. Interestingly enough, if you go to King's College in Cambridge... Um, you can see what the eventual threat to sacred music was under Henry VIII in the choir screen as you're going in There's all these really intricate carvings this these wooden carvings and you can spy there are interlacing repeating H's and A's that are tied with knots and this stood for Anne Boleyn of course Henry and Anne and Anne was the woman who, inadvertently or not, was the opening for the Reformation in England. So more on that in just a little bit. Um, In a psalter presented to him in the early 1540s, Henry VIII is represented as a musician. The illumination for Psalm 53, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. It shows Henry seated, playing on his harp, while his fool listens uncomprehendingly. Um, God was the chief musician, but Henry was a new King David, the author of the psalms, supposedly. He was leading his people into the true worship of God. And there are about 33 complete compositions that Henry VIII wrote that are left that we can still listen to. There's an album of the complete music of Henry VIII, and they range from the sacred to love songs, these kind of melancholy ones like Oh My Heart, which presumably was written for Anne Boleyn. Henry was a fan of all of the music played at his court, both the sacred and the secular. And he also wrote the smash hit of the 1520s, which was Pastime with Good Company. And it it swept the nation even more than that annoying Carly Ray Jepsen call me maybe I just I'm thought of that, and I just can't get that out of my head now. So anyway, past time with good company. it was just sweeping the nation, the Christmas number one. it was amazing. Um, so check it out. It's on the Spotify playlist. so Henry grew and he invested in the chapel Chapel Royal during the early part of his reign. And it consisted of 12 boy choristers, 32 adult males, who would have sung the services, mostly in rotation. The boys were between 7 and 14 years old, depending on when their voices broke. And they were looked after by the master of the children for the Chapel Royal, who was responsible for their education and for their board and through their lodging. So that was the Chapel Royal there. And so back to Anne Boleyn, Henry wooed Anne through song and through music, but In order to have her, he wound up needing to break with Rome, of course. And that threatened the entire infrastructure of sacred music in England. In Roman Catholic England, mass was never said. It was sung. It was a sung mass. But the Protestants wanted to get rid of all of the showy rituals of religion that they said separated people from from God. They wanted the word of God to be spoken. Music might have moved the emotions of people, but they were still ritual, and that was seen as wrong. And so England suddenly became preoccupied with translating the Bible into English rather than the creation of more of an English musical tradition. Um, the first English translation of the Old and New Testaments was the Great Bible. It was published under the Henry VIII's patronage in 1539, And then he began translating the liturgy, which was complete with the publication of the Book of Common Prayer, which was in 1549, and that was revised again in 1551 under Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. So Cranmer himself really differed from Henry regarding the importance of music in the worship of God. He wasn't musical, and he rejected the importance of music. He wanted the liturgy to be spoken without processions, without processional singing, And since the words were spoken in English rather than Latin, people could understand and meditate on the words rather than needing to rely on being moved by the emotion of the music and the pomp of the processions. Henry was never a fan of this. Henry like I said was very musical but after Henry died Cranmer was able to put his plan into action and music was now sung in in simple unison with words in English the ruling at one cathedral read quote that the choir shall from henceforth sing or say no anthems of our lady or other saints but only those of our lord and them not in Latin, but choosing the best and most sounding to Christian religion, they shall turn the same into English, setting thereunto a plain and distinct note for every syllable one, and they shall sing them, and none others. The rules were a little bit different at each cathedral, but by way of what they were talking about, if you listen to Thomas Tallis's "If ye love me, keep my commandments," which is on the spotify playlist you'll you'll hear kind of what this new music meant. There wasn't any kind of flowing polyphony, just simple words that people can understand sung in a way that focuses on the words themselves rather than the music. So I'm just going to play just a bit here in case you don't have access to the playlist. And this is coming out of my phone, so I'm sorry about that. Um, So let's just see. So you see it was just very plain if you love me keep my commandments and there wasn't just this flowing moving forward. So uh, yeah with the with the break from Rome the monasteries were dissolved and the money went into the king's pockets. Some monasteries had had very professional choirs singing in the lady chapels dedicated to the Virgin Mary and they had services that had been open to the public and the music was very high quality, but these choirs were dissolved when the monasteries themselves were dissolved. One of the chief roles of these monasteries and colleges had been to pray for the souls of those who died and were in in purgatory, but the Protestants rejected the idea of purgatory, and so the need to have a choir singing masses for the soul wasn't really necessary in their view. Once Henry died, Cramer moved ahead with dissolving the choral institutions as he was one of the major advisors to the young King Edward, and he was able to have a big impact on the view of the young King. The whole Latin liturgy and performance of the music was now considered illegal. Choirs were disbanded. Organs were torn out of churches. Choir books and other manuscripts were burned and recycled. It just breaks my heart to imagine this. These people just ripping apart these these choir books. Um, Even the Chapel Royal was disbanded, and had edward lived and ruled longer english polyphony might have completely disappeared but edward died at age 15 and he was succeeded by his sister mary who was a catholic she restored music along with all of the other practices of the pre-reformation church so she brought back all of the singing of of the mass um and brought the choirs back But before England could move entirely back to Rome, Mary died and Elizabeth was the new queen. Must have been very frustrating. Um, So Elizabeth was Anne Boleyn's daughter and as such, she she was a Protestant. But she also was Henry VIII's daughter and she loved ceremonies and she was a skilled musician. But she also didn't want to force her beliefs on the entire country because England had seen years and years of arresting and burning People who believed different things with every transition uh, from of, of ruler. So she brought back the ceremony. She was tired of all of these burnings, um, and she didn't want to force it on people. So she brought back the pre-Reformation musical tradition, but it was hardly ever sung outside of her own Chapel Royal. Though by the end of her reign, the fashions were beginning to change again. And nobles were becoming tired of the sort of stripped down harshness of Protestantism, and they missed the music and the ceremony. So there was just kind of this continual back and forth. But um, Elizabeth, when she died, was succeeded by the Stuart Kings, who came from Scotland and were all very musical as well. And after the English Civil War in the mid 17th century upon the restoration of the monarchy, one of the first institutions that was restored was the Chapel Royal, which now included, in addition to the voices, 24 violins. And this eventually provided the structure for the very famous English orchestral anthem that we know so well. So the Chapel Royal throughout its history provided musical training, the best musical training for young boys. It exposed a chorister to the best music. It offered the best creative opportunities to men who continued on. A man could learn composition and be certain that some of his work was going to be performed for the king or at least very great nobles. And a product, the product of all of this, was the great genius Henry Purcell, who is still a bit later than our time period, but needs to be recognized as the brilliant musical genius that he was. And he was a product of the Chapel Royal. And so that's what the Chapel Royal could, could create. So that is it this week. Um, the book recommendation is Music and Monarchy by Dr. David Starkey. And I'll put a link up on the blog. There's also a great TV series that he did based on the book. And the episodes are available on YouTube. I'll put a link up there as well. And again, please check out the new site at HDPE http colon slash slash englandcast.com and let me know what you think about it and finally the reminder about the spotify playlist i'll put a link up to that on the facebook page you can go to the facebook page to send me notes and show ideas and talk to me about life in general right now i'm stuck in chicago with a snowstorm on the way so i'm having a hard time getting home so I'm recording this in a a hotel, so that's a good time. If you want to talk about the weather, we can talk about the weather. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash englandcast. And thank you so much for all of your continued support and listening. And I will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Blow. Send for me, me sweating, blow, northern wind. blow, blow. Ich haut a board in Bower Brigg, That soul is Sam Lees on Sieg. Men's cool maiden of me, fair and to fonder. In all this warfare, ich one, a board of blood and of bone. Never yet in known not somewhere in London